Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. My name is Mitch Borisma. I'm the Director of Operations here at the CIC. I'm very happy to welcome all of you to this next installment of our Father Shaw Lecture Series, where we're diving into the recurring themes found in Father Shaw's work. Uh, well, with Lent just around the corner tonight, we're turning to the topic of fasting. Here's a little of what Father Shaw had to say on the topic in his brief book, Journey Through Lent, published back in 1979. He said, we live in an era when we Christians are required less of by the church in terms of official fasting and abstinence than any other Christian generation. We seem, compared to our rigorous ancestors, a frail and fragile lot. This is curious. When we look at the laws of fasting and abstinence imposed by the church during most of its existence, we discover that the church today thinks little of our capacity or willingness to give up food and drink. Oriental Christians, Orthodox Muslims, Strict Anglicans and most Hindus fast and abstain more than we currently are requested to do. We are asked to do other things, to be sure, like behaving better and giving alms, worthy objects, no doubt, and we are encouraged to fast and abstain voluntarily. But except for Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, little is demanded, and even on those days, one really has to gorge oneself to break the defined fast. He continues, Fasting and abstaining in Lent is a sign of our relation to God and to ourselves. For the most part, people are not starving and poor because others are rich and dieting. Fasting and abstinence are God-oriented acts, signs of the spirit alive within us, signs of our sense that God alone is our destiny. Together, they exist to remind us of the depths of our being and the infinity of God. We spiritually give up something to remind us of what all other things are about. With these reflections in mind, we turn our attention now to our speaker this evening, who is taking up these themes of the history, science, and theology of Christian fasting in his new book. Jay Richards is the research assistant professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, and executive editor of The Stream. He is the author and editor of more than a dozen books, including two New York Times bestsellers. He's here tonight to launch his latest book, one particularly fitting for this Father Shaw lecture series, not only because of the topic, but because it also draws upon that distinctly Shawlian habit of titling books with two or three or even four subtitles. So please join me in welcoming Jay to the podium to discuss his book, Eat Fast Feast, How Science is Validated in Ancient Practice, Heal Your Body While Feeding Your Soul, A Christian Guide to Fasting. Thanks so much. Well, it's, it's a pleasure, actually. My, my editor is actually here in town uh, and this was his idea to have three or four subtitles. And so if you look at the cover, one is on a medallion, and apparently it sort of works. Um, but let me just tell you about how this book came about, uh, because it's sort of unusual. If, if anybody knows me, I, I write on things having to do with science, economics, and faith primarily. Um, and so why would I write a book on fasting? And honestly, I did not plan to write a book on fasting. Um, what happens is that I actually discovered the wonders of fasting more or less by accident. I would like to, I would like to say... Uh, that it was just my piety that led me to do this. But in fact, I had tried fasting periodically over the last 30 years or so, but was generally a bad faster. Um, and the most fasting I actually tried was when I was an evangelical. I'm actually a convert. My family and I entered the church about 10 and a half years ago. And I was sort of relieved when I became Catholic to learn that, oh, actually the obligations are mostly kind of residual fasts. So you have this thing called a fast, which is the hour before Mass, which means if you shower before you go to Mass, right, you're going to meet this obligation. This is not a kind of serious business, this hour. And then you get a, what we now call a fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, which means eat a little less, basically. So it's sort of two small meals, not equaling one meal and another small meal. Um, but if you know anything about the history of the church, the actual practice of fasting, you realize that what this is is it's literally it's the residue. It's this kind of residual leftover practice from an ancient practice that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years and then disappeared sometime in the last... It wasn't really... You might think it just happened in the 1960s, but it's actually been happening uh, for decades. If you read... For instance, the, the essay in the old um, online Catholic encyclopedia written in 1909 and 1910 about the black, called the black fast, which means just a serious fast of water only. It says, any observer cannot fail to realize uh, how the practice of fasting has, has uh, diminished and dwindled in recent years. That was in 1909. 
And so I, I was sort of aware of this, and it, it sort of bothered me, but I was also kind of glad that I wasn't obligated to do it because it was really, really, really hard. And then I had an experience a few years ago because I had to have a medical uh, uh, procedure done, um, and I had been eating this. It's a kind of a long story, and I won't give you the whole details, but I had been eating a low-carb diet for various reasons. I was testing this out. I'm kind of a, a self-experimenter, an N-equal-1 experimenter when it comes to fitness and things like that. So I was doing that. I was eating a low-carb diet, and I had to fast for 36 hours. I mean, literally eating nothing. I had never done this before. I'd never gone more than 24 hours. Now, this is going to be awful. And so right before the end of this fast, I went to, to work out. I thought, well, I feel like I should do something. And I felt really energetic and strong, and I had this weird lucidity and clarity of mind that I had honestly never experienced before. And so I did what anyone would do that would have an experience like this. I went and Googled it, right? Okay, so what's, what's happening exactly? Only to discover that there were hundreds and hundreds of articles, both kind of popular-level bloggy-type articles and scientific articles, about the therapeutic and physical benefits of fasting. Now, it had started out at the time, I would call this sort of California fashionable. So fringe everywhere else, but there's some tech bros in California trying this kind of crazy thing on fasting out. Now this is very odd because there are actually physiological effects that are actually fairly well known and studied having to do with fasting. And it just seemed weird to me that people would discover just at the time that Christians in general and Catholics in particular have quit fasting, a practice that had been a part of Catholic spirituality and practice for almost all of its history. We quit doing it. And then the tech bros in California pick it up again uh, for purely therapeutic reasons. And so this bothered me, and I started experimenting with it and very quickly realized how amazing fasting was and that there are different benefits at different timescales, different kinds of fasts, different things that you can do um, that actually correspond if you look at the history of the church and the way fact fasting was practiced historically, uh, that there are different kinds of fasts practiced at different times of the year, during the week, during the day. And so the purpose of the book, honestly, was to bring those two things together. Because there are a lot of good books on fasting. In fact, the guy that wrote uh, the, sub, the foreword to the book, Dr. Jason Fung, is a nephrologist and an expert. He's in Toronto. And he is using fasting at a therapeutic level to reverse type 2 diabetes uh, and, and obesity. Now, no one should be surprised about obesity, but, I mean, serious reversals of type 2 diabetes um, and so he's got wonderful books on it. I thought nobody needs to write another book on this. But I started writing about the subject, started speaking. In fact, I spoke to the Sarah Club here at, at, uh, on Ash Wednesday a few years ago at St. Matthew's Cathedral. And I had a number of pious Catholics come up to me and said, I'm so glad you're talking about this because I just did a two-week water-only fast at this New Age clinic in California. And it sort of made me nervous. Why aren't Catholics doing this? Why do I have to go to a New Age clinic? You've got to write something about it. And so I got enough of that kind of testimony that I thought, okay, maybe there's something to be done here. And I decided, you know, there actually is because uh, the Catholic anthropology says, the Christian anthropology, Genesis 1, right? We're not ghosts and machines planted in bodies, and we're not glorified apes come down uh, from the trees, we are the breath of God and the dust of the earth, united in a unique hybrid, body and soul, right? Dust and breath. And so it, it stands to reason that a practice like fasting, which involves your metabolism, it involves your body, it involves this primal biological need that we should have. If you have a proper anthropology, you should expect that it's going to have both physical and spiritual effects and benefits, so there's no reason why we need to bifurcate these things because the temptation, I noticed when I started reading uh, Catholic books on fasting, including very good ones that I talk about in the book, I noticed that uh, writers on this were always very careful to say, okay, I'm going to talk about fasting as a spiritual practice. I don't want to talk about physical benefits to fasting. Don't get that in your mind. In fact, it's probably a sin if you think about the physical benefits of fasting. That's impious. And in fact, when I started writing about it, I had someone in the, in the comments section at, at the stream where I write, um, actually accused me of sacrilege for saying that actually there are physical benefits to fasting. And I think this is honestly, this is a kind of warmed over sort of Gnosticism in which we have to, we treat these things as if they have to be absolutely separate. But we don't just believe in the immortality of the soul, we believe in the resurrection of the body. And so there should be, we should at the very least be open to the possibility that um, there is both a reason physically and spiritually for fasting, and that having given it up, there has been both a spiritual and a physical 
cost to it. And so that's really the purpose of the book, is to say actually both these things can be true. And you can fast for health reasons, you can have uh, fast for spiritual reasons. In fact, it's fine to do both of those as long as you keep them properly ordered. Right? Obviously, if you, are, if you are sort of disordered in your affections of the body, then that's, that's a real problem. Well, so why don't we fast? I know uh, Catholics don't tend to use this argument, but I've, talked to, I've got a lot of friends that are evangelicals and talk to evangelicals about this. And people that don't fast tend to say, well, Jesus never commanded us to fast. Right? He commanded us to do lots of things. If fasting were so important, why wouldn't Jesus have explicitly told us that? And why wouldn't the gospel writers have recorded it? Well, the reason is because for Jesus, it was obvious that we were going to fast. He took it for granted. There are lots of things that he didn't command us to do because he assumed that we would. This is, of course, we all know this passage from Matthew uh, 5 in which Jesus says, when you pray, when you give alms, when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by men. In other words... Of course you're going to fast, of course you're going to give alms, of course you're going to pray, but don't virtue signal when you do it. You know, right? It's very tempting, I can tell you, if you're fasting, especially if you're the only one fasting. So it's one thing if the whole, the whole city or all of Crete is fasting, you know, you're all uh, Orthodox Christians and everybody's fasting. There's no virtue signaling, right? Because you're all doing it. Nobody wants to hear you complaining. But if you're the only one fasting, right, there's sort of a temptation, right? To sort of, and so Jesus is saying, don't do that. In fact, when you're fasting, if you're really hungry, go out of your way not to look like you're hungry. So he assumed that we were going to fast. So if anything, that's sort of prior to a command. It was so obvious we were supposed to do it that he did never actually bother to command it. And that's exactly how the early church understood it. This was never actually a debate among early Christians about whether there should be fasting. And what the early Christians initially, I'm summarizing a kind of long and complicated history, but early Christians, including the church fathers, all reflected on the fact that Jesus had fasted for 40 days in the desert. All the synoptics uh, mention this event. It happens right before his earthly ministry. He goes into the desert, and we can assume that he is relying on his human nature here, right? So, and the reason is because if you look at the text, at the end of the 40 days, what happens? He's hungry, and then Satan comes and tempts him, and the first thing he tempts him to do is to turn the, the rock into bread, Right? So he has the supernatural power to do that. So the implication is that Jesus was withholding his supernatural power. He was relying on, on, his on his human nature in this fast. So he experienced it just as a human would. Presumably he was drinking water, though, because you, nobody can live naturally for, for 40 days without water. But do you know that if you're carrying 30 pounds of uh, food energy in your body, which is what fat is, it's essentially food energy, if you're, if you're carrying 30 pounds of food energy, and if you're over 40, unless you're really thin, that's likely true, you can go 40 days without fasting. Now you're thinking, okay, he's going to tell me to go 40 days. I'm not, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but my point is this, it can be done naturally. And if you're re usually healthy and you keep your electrolytes up, you can actually do it. And so the early church didn't immediately say, okay, we all have to fast for 40 days, like Jesus in the desert. That wasn't quite how people went. Nevertheless, they took it as a precedent that if Jesus fasted, before he started his earthly ministry. First of all, why did he do that? You ever think about this? So if you think about Jesus' earthly ministry, he spends three years basically announcing the kingdom of God, displaying the kingdom of God in miracles, right? And then working his way to Golgotha and to the crucifixion and to the sacrifice for the life of the world, right? So, that, so in other words, Jesus is about to start his earthly ministry and he's about to fight principalities and powers, and before he does that, he engages in the mother of all boot camps, spiritual boot camps. 40, he, does he carb load, right? Or is he doing high-intensity interval training? I mean, what does he do? No, he fasted for 40 days. And so somehow this actually increased, presumably, his spiritual power, the Son of God, fully human and, and, fully, uh, and fully God, by fasting. And so all the early Christians couldn't help but notice this. The other thing is that there was a kind of general thing at the time, there was a kind of understanding that fasting was a natural part of piety and religion. It wasn't uniquely Christian. Jews fasted, the pagans fasted. And so what happened early on is that Christians decided, okay, let's fast not when the pagans do and not when the Jews do. Let's fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Wednesday is the day when Jesus is betrayed. Friday is the day in which um, he's crucified. And then, of course, we will feast on Sunday. So I hadn't mentioned that until just now. But every Sunday is a mini-feast day. 
And so they assume right from the beginning that you need to have this kind of natural pattern in which during the week you're normally, you're eating modestly most of the time. On Wednesdays and Fridays you fast. And then on Sundays you have a mini feast. And then over a period of a few centuries uh, evolved this idea of a roughly 40-day Lenten fast. And that's, again, as a model on Jesus' fast. And then the Advent fast as well. So um, that's why the priests incidentally wear purple during Advent. It was also traditionally a time of fasting, which has been completely lost, and we just start feasting on Thanksgiving, and we go all the way to Epiphany, right? Um, but we still manage to retain Lent, and I, I like to think that it's because of Mardi Gras, and so somehow that triggers that, oh yeah, I think we're supposed to do something. And so that's where we got the 40-day Lenten fasts. So what happened to this? Where did it go? It's almost entirely disappeared. Now there was, um, if you read the Church Fathers, you read the Desert Fathers, uh, um, you will discover a kind of an intense fast uh, from people like St. Anthony, who often went ate very, very little, wander off into the desert for several years and eat nothing but the scraps that pilgrims would sort of throw over the wall and things like that. So that when St. Benedict implemented his rule and advised one meal a day, that was to actually moderate the fasting practices uh, at the time. So the, real, the truly pious and religious weren't even eating one meal a day. So that was actually moderate. Now, to think, try to get your mind around that, that eating one meal a day would be a moderation of a common Christian fasting practice. It's just almost entirely unimaginable to us. So what exactly happened? Well, a bunch of things happened, um, but I do want to make us all feel guilty. We're at the Catholic Information Center. So I want you to see what our uh, slightly separated brethren um, in the East actually do. And if you have any friends, I have some friends that go to the uh, Eastern Rite Church in McLean do this. So this is a fasting calendar. This is the 2018 calendar, but they all basically look like this. It's the Orthodox fasting schedule. And there's some variations. It gets a little bit complicated. But if you want to know the really hardcore fasters, it's the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox. They fast about 250 days of the year. There's 365 days, so most of the time is some kind of fast. And so fasting here, strictly speaking, means not eating food or not, not consuming calories. So in other words, it's not a fast if you blend up the food, right? It's still food, even if it's liquid. So that's, what a, that's the primary meaning of a fast. Secondary meaning would be a strong abstinence from a particular kind of food. And those are the two primary meanings of fast. So now we like to use this in a metaphorical sense because, you know, we don't do it in the literal sense, so we fast from Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, right? But that's the sort of meaning. And so the fasting uh, in the Orthodox schedule involves sometimes water-only fast, but very often it's a hardcore abstinence. And so if you want to see, uh, sometimes it's just an abstaining from, from meat, which is like it is for Catholics or land animals. And then sometimes it's more than that. It's that plus meat plus dairy plus eggs. And then the green is abstaining from meat, fish, dairy, and eggs. And then the, the red is abstaining from meat, dairy, fish, eggs, wine, and olive oil. So basic, but, and basically what that is is that you're just eating nothing but vegetables, effectively. And so what you can tell here is look at those large tracks of red. So you can see Lent, you can see Advent, and then there's a, a fast of the apostles of Peter and Paul in June, and you get a lot of that too. And so they're basically, don't want to move away from the mic too much, but these, this is basically a vegan diet. Um, and basically vegetables during the week. So what's wrong with us? <laughs> right? Is this just, just raw legalism? What's happening here? Oh, incidentally, the, uh, Ansel Keys, who popularized, he's the scientist that popularized the diet heart hypothesis, got this idea in our heads that saturated fat is going to kill us and popularized the Mediterranean diet. He was studying, uh, I believe it was the island of Crete, um, and this is where he got this idea for the Mediterranean diet, and he happened to be testing their diet during Orthodox Lent when they were fasting. And thought, well, that's not important. So he just extrapolated from what they were doing. So a little, little side note. So this is, this, this is the closest um, sort of representation to what Christians in general did uh, for at least 1,500 years. And so then there's this kind of tough question, what exactly happened? And I, I honestly think part of it is just the result of the fracture the fractures in Christendom, because there was a debate about the nature of fasting and whether it was works righteousness during the Protestant uh, Reformation. Uh, and a bunch of stuff happened that we'll talk about in a minute uh, that I think led to the uh, almost the complete demise of fasting. 
Now, let me tell you, though, why this may just be my hang-up, but why I didn't fast seriously for a long time, another reason, is that I actually thought it was bad for you. So I was a strength trainer in college and would read muscle and fitness and things like this. And so I can't tell you how many times, probably thousands of articles I had read that said that you need to eat frequently. So you need your body, you want to kind of have a nice constant protein feed so that your body will retain lean muscle mass and won't store fat. But if you go more than about four hours without eating, your body will go into starvation mode and it will shed muscle like rats leaving a sinking ship and you'll store fat, you know, and it'll screw up your blood sugar and your insulin and everything. So what you want to do is eat about every three or four hours right? And that'll keep your, your blood sugar and your insulin really level. Okay. And so I, I believed that this was the case. And so I thought, so fasting, yeah, I'll do it as a mortification, but it doesn't actually make sense. If you're trying to be healthy, if you're trying not to end up with too much body fat, if you're trying to keep lean muscle mass, you probably wouldn't want to fast. In fact, this is a stereotype among some evangelicals that fasting with, it's essentially, it's like those the medieval monks in um, uh, I, I forget if it's, I think it's the life of Brian in which you have these monks walking around and they're chanting and banging their heads, right? Or um, <laughs> a Dan Brown novel, right? Where you have a monk sort of mortifying himself. And that's the, that's the image, is that it's actually a punishment of the body. And so it's essentially it's kind of vaguely Gnostic to, to fast because you're actually violating our bodiliness. This is not true. None of this is true. We now know that actually grazing like we tend to do is actually a really, really bad idea. If you think about most of human history, we didn't have uh, wheat thins available 24 hours, 24-7, right? You didn't just have the, the Frappuccino machine right down the street. What people did, if you think about most of human history, there'd be times of plenty when people would eat a lot. There'd be times when maybe there's enough to get by. There'd be other times, often during the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, when there wasn't a lot to eat. That was a natural pattern. That's the way in which the human body is adapted, is to be able to eat a lot sometimes, maybe in the summer when food's available, maybe add a little body weight, but then go some amount of time without eating. That's the kind of natural way for most of human history that people ate. This way of eating, which we eat very, very frequently, is a very recent phenomenon. In fact, it only started in the 1960s and 1970s. So if you grew up before the 1960s, you probably remember it's three square meals a day. People tended to eat for about 12 hours during the day, and then they went 12 hours without eating. Right? Your mom, some of you may remember your mom telling you, you know, don't, don't spoil your dinner. Um, that's not the case now, and it's not just that we're lazy. It's that actually fitness advice told us that this is how we were supposed to do these things. I will confess, my daughter's actually here, and so she knows this, that for years I forced my daughters to eat breakfast right when they got up because I believe this. Yeah, you got to eat breakfast. Why aren't you eating? You know, this is, this is basically what I thought. And so let me just tell you, uh, if you're interested, you read the book, but the now, we've now actually tested this. Um, if you go on a diet and you reduce the amount of food that you eat, let's say you normally need 2,500 calories and you eat 1,700 calories, and you do that for weeks at a time, guess what happens? You'll lose a little weight at the beginning, and then your, meta your metabolism slows down. Right? It resets down to that lower level. And so that's why you'll level off, and that's why 98 to 100% of the population that tries this eventually gains all the weight back, because you downshift your metabolism. Now, guess what happens if you don't eat anything for 24 hours? Your body increases growth hormone. So growth hormone is what is used uh, to preserve lean muscle mass. Right? So bodybuilders use it illegally in, in too large amounts. Your body will increase adrenaline, norepinephrine to increase your metabolism. So we know that on average, assuming you're a normal, healthy person, if you don't eat anything for three straight days, growth hormone and adrenaline and other sort of energy hormones go up, and it takes until day five of a fast before your metabolism levels off back to where it was at the beginning. Right? So it's exactly the opposite of mo what most of us have believed. And so what that means is there's a physiological effect of eating and then not eating at all is entirely different from eating slightly less all the time. Um, and so if you think about that, for most of human history, what we did is we ate sometimes and we didn't eat at other times. Right? So you could go all the way back to the hunter-gatherer stage, right, when people did that. And then you had thousands of years in which every major religion replicated this pattern in terms of a fast, a rigorous fasting schedule. We abandoned that. We start grazing all the time. And guess what happens physiologically? That's kind of a remarkable thing. So what exactly happened? Why did we quit fasting? Well, I would, I would say it's basically two things. One, it's uh, over time, the particular fast that we developed in the West started to look arbitrary. That's the first thing. 
And then the other one is I'd call the death of a thousand dispensations. So the first one is, okay, so here's, here's the sort of how it started, is that fasting meant fasting. So we're just not going to eat dur- on Wednesdays and Fridays. We're going to drink water unless you're a, a pregnant or a lactating woman or you're elderly or sick or you're a small child. We're just not going to eat, right? We'll drink water. And then, okay, maybe a little later, this is tough, so we'll have some vegetables after sunset, all right? So that's kind of how it starts. Um, and then people say, well... You know, John the Baptist, he was hardcore, and he was in the desert, and he ate locusts and honey. I mean, what about that? And aren't shrimp just kind of sea locusts? I mean, couldn't we eat those? I'm not making this up. Well, maybe we'll have those. Okay, well, if we're going to eat shrimp, what about, what about fish, right? At least like kind of non-fatty fish. Wouldn't that be okay? I mean, Jesus ate fish after the resurrection with his disciples. Wouldn't that be okay? Oh, sure. Okay, that makes sense. It's still a sacrifice, especially if you're a shepherd and you can't get to fish easily then just eating fish has both a symbolic value and it also has it's a kind of hardcore abstinence in which you're either you don't have access to fish or it's a pain and so you don't really have very much to eat. Okay, so that's, that's the pattern that's set in. First of all, because it's easy and because it initially made sense as a sacrifice. Fast forward 1,500 years. You live in Boston. It's Lent. It's Friday. You're not going to eat meat, so you're going to have cheese pizza and lobster bisque on Friday, right? (laughs) What does this have to do with anything, right? It's at best a mild inconvenience. And so I can tell you I never got this when we became Catholic. Why fish? And why does meat not refer to fish? It only refers to land animals, right? So there was that going on. And then there was also immigration patterns which led to difficulties among Catholics. So if you think about Irish Catholics that come to the United States and have a lot of food, their Protestant co-workers are working labor-intensive jobs, and they can eat all the time, and Catholics are having to abstain. Um, and so they would get dispensations in the north. And guess what happens? When you get a dispensation in the Amazon, you're going to get it in Germany the day after the, tomorrow, right? Um, and if you get it in Boston, you're going to get it in Buenos Aires, too. And so you get all these dispensations, and the whole thing falls apart. So in Vatican II, the idea was not to get rid of this. It was to re-spiritualize fasting. He said, okay, so we're, we're going to take away this obligation just to eat fish, except during Lent, but everyone is supposed to give up something significant on Friday. So the p- purpose of this was noble. It was, okay, we need people to focus on something that's genuinely sacrificial. But the effect of it was to entirely spiritualize it and to remove fasting from what it was before, which is a very specific bodily sacrifice. And so you get essentially a kind of what appears to be a virtually arbitrary kind of guidelines, right? Why fish? Uh, and then all these dispensations. And so the whole thing falls apart, except for these sort of slight symbols. And so that's, that's effectively what happened. And now here we are, all right? And so the question, though, is why don't we just start doing this again? I'm sure some of you in this room have probably done this. My wife and I did this years ago. We decided we were Protestants. So we said, well, let's fast for 24 hours on Sunday, you didn't know it was supposed to be a feast day. So, I, you know, I mean, it didn't follow the church calendar Sunday. And so we do it. It was horrible. We were eating a really low-fat diet. We were really fit and in shape, and it was just torture. And so I can tell you, you don't feel closer to Jesus if you're fixated on the next meal. So it just wasn't obvious exactly what the spiritual benefits of this were. Um, and so it was only in sort of looking at the details that I realized that what has actually happened is that we have developed patterns of eating, both in terms of what we eat and in terms of frequency, that actually make it physiologically almost impossible for us to really fast in any significant way. And this is the kind of key thing. Um, this is, for me, was sort of the key that unlocked it. This is why fasting is so hard, sugar plus grazing. All right? And so um, if you look at the American diet compared to what we call the standard American diet, which is now proliferating, it's common in China now, Um, the way it differs from all other human diets throughout all of human history is that it is extremely high in refined carbohydrate and sugar content, and it's extremely high in terms of frequency, in terms of eating very frequently, three or four hours. All right, so that is a very particular thing to our metabolism. Um, Your your blood, uh, you can hold um, about five grams of sugar in your bloodstream at any one time. So that's a, basically a teaspoon of sugar. That's how much sugar you can hold in your bloodstream. And so if you get it, and you, you consume that. Now, one teaspoon is not very much, right? So if you drink a Coke, you have gone way over that. And so it's toxic to have lots of sugar in your blood, and so your body is very good at getting it out uh, of your bloodstream and moving it to the liver, and it uses insulin to do that. Insulin is a hormone that's a signaling hormone that says, okay, too much sugar in the blood, send it to the liver. 
all right? But if you're doing this constantly, what you're doing is you're constantly dinging the little insulin dial, constantly doing that. And so if your body is constantly sending sugar into your liver and then your liver is sending it out to your cells and to your muscles uh, to try to take up the sugar because that's where it uses it for energy, guess what happens? It can only hold so much sugar. So you know what happens to your cells if you're constantly doing this? Your cells build up defenses called insulin resistance. You say, look, we can take no more sugar. And so you basically build up, build up a wall, send the sugar back to the liver, and then the liver says, well, I can't handle this either. I can only absorb, you know, a few hundred grams of sugar. And so I'll, you, it converts it into fat. It stores it. And then it converts. And as long as you're doing this, your body stores the fat but doesn't use it. That's the thing. As long as you're keeping your insulin levels up and you're bringing the sugar in constantly, your body is converting it to fat but not using it. So you can literally be 100 pounds overweight and absolutely starving because your body isn't able to access those stores. That's literally what lots of us are doing. Um, and that makes fasting virtually impossible because if you go four hours without eating or six hours or 12 hours, you're going to feel lightheaded. You're going to be angry. You're going to want to kill somebody, right? I mean, this is what we experienced. So I can tell you when I first started writing about this, it turns out absolutely everyone has hypoglycemia or thinks they do. Oh, no, I could never do that. I have blood sugar problems. Well, I'm sorry. We can't all have hypoglycemia, right? But we all seem to think we do. it. So that's that's... That's the, the kind of general details. The other thing is that we are blessed by our bounty. And so for thousands of years, we've been breeding and hybridizing uh, grains and, and fruits and vegetables. And we breed them and, and improve them basically for portability and for sweetness. And as a result of that, you may not know that the wild banana, which you never see now, it actually has this forbidding uh, skin that you can hardly get into. It's got all these yucky seeds into it. So those little tiny seeds, that's the result of hybridization. Corn, okay, so corn, if you look at corn 9,000 9, years ago, was one one-thousandth the volume of what it is now and much less sweet. Uh, that's a wild um, watermelon just a few hundred years ago, and this is the latest one, sweet, sweet seedless that you can get at Costco, all right? And then grains that we eat have not only been changed, but rather than being ground by stone, they're industrially ground to a fine dust. So they turn to sugar, it turns to sugar almost instantly. All right, now I'm not saying, so let's go back to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. That's not my point here. These are all blessings, but they have effects. Anybody that studies economics will know even the greatest benefit also has some cost. And if we don't realize that, we don't do things to counterbalance it. For instance, eating a certain way or fasting periodically it can have very, very bad health, not only bad health consequences, it can also make it very difficult to return to what I'll call a fasting lifestyle in which fasting is just a permanent thing that we do all the time. As I mentioned earlier, this is how humans ate for most of history, right? So most of human history was not in the agricultural stage. Today, most people live in a, uh, are post-agrarian. Uh, there are a few uh, tribes of people. This is a, a tribe in Tanzania that still lives a traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And you can guess how they eat, right? And they always, if, unless they have been introduced to um, the modern ways of eating, their morphology, their physical morphology, o always looks a certain way. They look generally, they don't get uh, some kind of disease. They're generally healthy. Right? And uh, there, there's, there are scientists that, that study these people groups because a lot of them are dwindling. There's actually very few that are still untouched. So if you go uh, and try to study people groups like this in Australia, they're all eating uh, sort of standard uh, American diet food. So, but this is, that's the kind of natural pattern, right? which we eat a lot, we'll feast, and then we have periods of time uh, in which there's not a lot of, a lot of food. And so it, it hadn't occurred to us until recently that that might actually be how we're designed that the design plan for the human body, it's actually not good for us to constantly be perturbing ourselves with food, that, that we actually should be doing something quite different. Right, so here's the kind of simple cycle. So this is my highly technical uh, diagram of the, the metabolic process, which I already kind of described for you. But here's how it goes. And so um, SAD is the standard American diet and how it leads to insulin resistance. This is not something that happens instantaneously. So this is not like, um, you know, drinking cyanide or something like that. This takes decades to happen. And so, but you eat quite frequently, a lot of sugary food. Uh, you constantly do it and you never abstain from it. That produces insulin, as I said. So you continue doing this. You need insulin. Insulin's a blessing. It gets the sugar out of the blood. But if it keeps happening, it happens continuously, you develop 
uh, insulin resistance. Uh, that forces the sugar to be stored as fat, right? That then, because you've got all this food energy that you're not using, right? So your blood sugar is going to go back down, your insulin is going to go down, and that signals to you, give me another spike. And we keep doing the same thing over and over. We increase insulin resistance. And guess what happens if you do this for three decades? Unless you've got a lucky metabolism, you're going to end up with metabolic syndrome, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and several other things. And we have a massive, started in the United States, and it's now a global epidemic of type 2 diabetes, and it's no wonder that that's happening, right? And this isn't, I don't want, this is not the result necessarily of gluttony. This is the result of just us developing patterns that we didn't know actually did this. So I think there's, you know, there's no reason to, uh, to torment people because of this, because we didn't know it was actually happening. But here's the good news, is that our, we're actually hybrids. So our body's actually designed to run really well on two different kinds of fuel. So imagine you like the, the hybrid, uh, like a Prius, right? You've got a battery that can be charged, and you can just run on the battery, but if the battery runs down, then the, the gasoline will kick on and it recharges the battery. Now, so imagine you had a Prius, and for 10 years, you constantly recharged the battery, and you ran around with a tank of gas, and you never used that tank of gas for 10 years. Right? Then suddenly you ran out the battery. You could guess that that other system right, was probably not in very good working order. That's how the human body is. So the human body has these two different metabolic pathways that it can use. We can use sugar. We can take sugar and convert it to glucose and use that energy. Virtually all of our cells can use that for energy. But we can also convert fat into something called ketones, which is a different form of energy, which our cells can also use for energy. These two different pathways. Here's the bad news, though, is that if you have sugar coming in constantly, your body never bothers to convert much of those fats to ketones. It never actually does that. And in order to have a fasting lifestyle, I'm convinced of this. This is my sort of physiological argument. You need to be using both of those. You need to be metabolically flexible. So your body needs to be working really well so that you can be in what's called ketosis, where you're using fats, or it can switch over to using sugar. And the reason is because when you're in ketosis, your insulin goes down, your blood sugar is stable, and you don't feel the kind of intense hunger that you feel otherwise. So this is why you get these stories from all the church fathers who talk about this amazing mental clarity and the loss of appetite after two or three days in which they don't feel hungry, they don't even think about food. It's because they were sampling this metabolic process that most of us have not experienced, believe it or not, since we were infants. And so this is what is actually, I think, happening at the physiological level. So then the question is, okay, so how do we do that? If I've been eating sugar uh, nonstop and I'm eating seven little meals a day, for the last 30 years, what I do. There's basically two ways to do this. It's an easy way and a hard way. One way is to eat a ketogenic diet for three days. The other way is to not eat for three days. So guess which is the hard one, all right? So it's to not eat for three days. Um, and so this is the sort of easy way to get your body into fat-burning mode. And this is what I proposed in the book, because I wrote this book not to, tell, to make people feel bad because they don't fast, but to say, actually, you can fast. It's not that hard. And if you will ease into it, abiding by the well-understood nature of the human body, you can develop fasting, you'll benefit from it, it's not going to torture you, uh, and you can make it permanent, right? The worst way to make something permanent is to try something, hate it, and never do it again, right? And so what I propose is that the first thing you want to do is you want to ease yourself into a state of ketosis. And that state of ketosis, what that is, all it is, is you keep insulin levels down, long enough and your body uses up all the glucose that it has in its liver and muscles and then your liver starts producing ketones either from fat that you're eating or from stored body fat right and then you've got ketones and then the insulin level stays down and so remember i told you insulin's a signaling molecule it needs to be down low for your body to use that fat right and once you do that things sort of level off and this is incidentally almost certainly why people feel this kind of mental euphoria at a certain stage during fasting. It's because they get into the state of ketosis. Mitch Borsmo, by the way, uh, the CEO of uh, uh, the Catholic Information Center, can I reveal this? That you did this? So he, so he went through this before Christmas, and I interviewed him at the stream, but he insisted on staying anonymous, because you didn't want a virtue signal. I'm proud of you. So I revealed the secret. So um, if you want to know what this is like, actually ask Mitch afterwards. And so this is basically how you uh, get into ketosis, weirdly, because this is going to shock you, right? Um, you eat a bunch of natural fat, you eat a moderate amount of protein, and you eat almost no carbohydrates. And you do it for a few days. I mean a lot of fat, like 80% of your calories are fat. Um, butter, coconut oil, what cream, whatever sort of works for you. Protein, 
moderate amount. And then all the carbohydrates, you just eat green vegetables, leafy green vegetables, which are carbohydrates, but they do very little to your insulin. So protein spikes your insulin some. Carbohydrates spike your insulin about twice the amount that protein does. Fat, hardly at all. All right? Um, and so you do this for three days, and then your body gets into ketosis. And so what happens, you've never been in this state, and it's like, what's happening? I feel sort of strange. I'm not sleeping well. My body feels kind of strange. You've got to drink a lot of water. You've got to keep your, uh, your electrolytes up for various reasons. But you do this for about a week, and it feels normal. And then you start limiting the amount of time during the day in which you eat. So whereas before most of us are on a 16-8 schedule, this is what a ketogenic meal, if you have somebody that can cook you really good meals, looks like, right? Otherwise, it looks like a bunch of olive oil and stuff like that, all right? Um, and so most of us eat on a sort of 16-8 schedule, which means that we sleep for eight hours and we eat over the course of 16 hours, right? So the first thing you do is you just reverse that. You just fast for 16 hours, and you eat for only eight hours. You, you narrow the window for eight hours. And now, it's one of you is thinking, oh, no, he's going to say skip breakfast. I know it's coming, right? Now, but that's not quite the lesson because you can pick an eight-hour window when you do this. At any time, you can do it from start in the morning and end in the afternoon. But I will tell you from experience, it's much easier to just delay eating breakfast until noon or one, one o'clock and then stop eating at eight. Okay, and, and you're, what's going to happen is that you're training your body to be able to do this. Right? You do that for a week. And then you just keep narrowing the window. And so you go 16-8. And then the next week you narrow it to a four-hour window in which you eat. So eat all of your food during four hours. I know this sounds totally crazy. If you've never done it, it's not that big a deal after a couple of weeks. Then you narrow it to one hour. So three days maybe during the week you just eat, eat as much as you want for an hour. It's actually possible to eat all your calories in one hour. It's not very pleasant, but you can do it. Now you're in the position to actually be able to genuinely fast. And so then you can go to, say, three days out of the next week, you will eat only 500 calories in that day, just a couple of avocados. And then at that stage, you will be ready to fast for 36 to 72 hours straight with nothing but water. Whereas if you tried to fast for 32 hours or for 36 or 72 hours before, if you've never done this and you tried it right now, it would be very unpleasant. If I locked you in a cage, you would survive it, but you would not want to do it again. All right? But if you ease into this and you decide you want to make this permanent because you're convinced that we're supposed to do it, this is the way to do it. Now, I've had some people say, Jay, you spend too much time talking about the kind of physiology of this. But the reason is that we are body and soul. We are bodies, right? And we're not doing this. And we're not doing it not just because we're bad Christians. We're doing it because it's actually really hard to do because of the way we eat and the way we live. And so I thought, we've got to find a way to make this easy. Now, once we've sort of set that up, that's, that's the kind of uh, thumbnail sketch the plan. Look at what some of the church fathers say. Now, I could, I could quote Augustine. I could say, quote Justin Martyr. They almost all say things like this. But this, um, this is uh, St. Basil the Great, one of the Cappadocian fathers. Here's what he says. He says, fasting gives birth to prophets and strengthens the powerful. Fasting makes lawgivers wise. Fasting is a safeguard for the soul, a steadfast companion for the body, a weapon for the valiant, and a gymnasium for athletes. Fasting repels temptations, anoints unto piety. It is the comrade of watchfulness and the artificer of chastity. In war, it fights bravely. In peace, it teaches stillness. Notice what he's doing here. Notice that he seamlessly moves from the spiritual effects of fasting to the physical effects. There's no, he doesn't say, well, now, on the one hand, it's going to do this. It's all there together. And now, they, now, remember, these guys didn't know anything about the sort of physiology of human metabolism. They were just, this is a phenomenological description of what they were experiencing. And yet, it's all there. They already knew this. And all the church fathers write and speak this way. And we're depriving ourselves of it. So there's an there amazing number of both spiritual and physical benefits. Now, part of me resists separating these because I think, in fact, they go together. But the, the detailed spiritual benefits, I'm getting stories from people um, of, of spiritual benefits, especially from churches that do fasting campaigns. But we know just in Scripture, for instance, Daniel, and a lot of Protestants notice this because Daniel, uh, at two different times in the book of Daniel, abstains, right? He just, at one time, Daniel and his companions just eat only vegetables for a few weeks. And there's another time where he's praying. And do you remember he abstains for three weeks and just eats vegetables? And then at the end of the three weeks, 
Michael the Archangel shows up. And he says, I, I tried to get here earlier, but essentially the demon in charge of this land prevented me. But your fasting and your praying freed it up. Now, this is just crazy. I mean, think about this, that we could, through our spiritual practices of prayer, prayer and fasting, things could happen, you know, in the netherworld between demons and angels that could affect things in that way. But it's right there. It's, it's in Holy Scripture, this idea that there's this connection between this physical act. In this case, Daniel wasn't just fasting. He was also fasting and praying, and those things went together. And, of course, you'll remember now at this point in the Gospels, right, in which the, the apostles, some of them go out and are trying to cast out demons, and they can't do it, and the demons uh, refuse, and they go and they tell Jesus, and Jesus says these can some of these can only come out from prayer and fasting. This idea that prayer by itself sometimes isn't enough, that you also need to be fasting, I would never dare to say that, except it's actually in Scripture, right there. And yet we don't avail ourselves of this. And so there's, spirit, there's warfare, spiritual warfare benefits. There's stories that people have of healed marriages. Um, there's just enriched closeness to God. There's better focus when it comes to mental prayer. I, I'm sure none of you have this problem. I have this problem if I just pray in my head. My mind goes immediately someplace else, right? Um, that's, that's an effect of fasting is to, to help prevent that. And then the physical effects. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I spent a lot of time in the book. Um, we know that fasting, if done properly, can help reverse for a lot of people, maybe 70% of the population, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and other diseases. We also are now finding that the other diseases can be treated with this. And the hypothesis at the moment is that this is primary, primarily the result of a process called autophagy. Autophagy means self-eating. So there was a Nobel Prize in medicine a few years ago for the scientists that discovered this process. So it turns out our cells have uh, several different modes that they're in. So if you're eating, um, it, basically what eating does is it puts your cells in the same mode that your car would be in if you're pressing the accelerator, right? So it's in go mode. It's constantly working. It's using fuel. It doesn't have time to repair itself. And so if you're constantly eating, it's always in the go, go, go mode. If you don't eat, though, there's signals that are switched in your cells into a stage called autophagy in which the cell starts repairing and recycling itself. So broken organelles get absorbed uh, and rebuilt as a result of autophagy. And guess what the leading signal for autophagy is in cells? Food intake or lack of food intake. And so this is the, the, the theoretical uh, backdrop for the reason that now some people are finding uh, remarkable reversals of things like Alzheimer's and even certain forms of cancer. And so at the moment, this is a tantalizing hypothesis. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is there seem to be physical benefits, different physical benefits cut on, come on um, at different time scales. So there's a certain kind of benefit to fasting for 24 hours, but certain kinds of benefits you're not going to get until you get out to about 36 hours. So that's just a kind of brief uh, uh, sampler of what's happening. Now, I've talked mostly about fasting um, and not a lot about feasting for obvious reasons. We know how to feast for the most part. We don't need a lesson in this. Um, but what's funny is, of course, um, feasts are always meant to be preceded by fasts. They're always like that. If you think about for most of history, if somebody was going to save money, like in a Dickensian novel, right, people are going to have the Christmas goose. That usually meant that they had to restrain themselves in order to save money to be able to have a feast. What we do now is we eat a lot all the time, and then feast is just when we eat more than we normally do. And so the irony is that we kind of know how to feast, but if these things are meant to go together, that means that we actually lose the meaning of a feast if it's not accompanied by a fast. And I'm convinced that that's, that's actually the pattern. That was the pattern that the early Christians followed in which they, they fasted and feasted or at least ate and fasted during the day, right? So you eat for a limited amount of time. So that's a type of fast. That's, by the way, called intermittent fasting. That's what the <laughs> word means, is that you just eat for part of the time during the day, and then you don't eat. That's a fast. And you have actual days during the week when you feast, or feast, like a Sunday, and days when you fast. And then you have seasonal times when you fast. These three days at the joints of the seasons called the ember days fast. Anybody heard of the ember days, by the way? We just started talking about it again. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas in the Summa talks about two types of fasts, the Lenten fast and the Ember Days fast. It's completely dropped off the radar. But these are three-day fasts, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday at the joints of the seasons. And then you have these seasonal fasts in the liturgy, right, at Lent and at Advent that last roughly 40 days. But that was the, the way that this was supposed to go. And we know this about feasting. 
I mean, imagine a, a, an 80-year-old woman gets up on Sunday morning. It's Christmas morning, and so she, she puts a turkey in. She makes sweet potato casserole and green bean casserole and cornbread stuffing and gets out her finest china and her silver, sets the table, right, makes some mulled wine, turns on her favorite music, Charlie Brown Christmas, let's say, right, sits down, lights a candle, says a prayer, and has a Christmas dinner by herself. There's something wrong there, right? That's a depressing picture. Because we know that feasts are meant to be enjoyed together. It's the essence of them. It's why we travel around. I actually think there's also something about that with fasts. So that was the wisdom of the church was to have these kind of patterns, not for a kind of legalism, but because there are actual uh, genuine benefits in fasting together as the body of Christ and feasting together as the body of Christ. And I think that there, there are things we're actually depriving ourselves of by not doing that. So I call this a fractal fasting and feasting across different time scales because the, the scientific evidence suggests that there are different benefits to fasts across different time scales. And if you notice, the traditional Christian calendar has fasting and feasting across different time scales. Now, what's a fractal? This is a, a single image of a fractal. Fractal is a geometric pattern uh, that retains order and a pattern at every size scale. So it's like an infinitely resolvable um, fractured shoreline or something like that. So if you blow these up, you've all seen these on YouTube, right? You expand these, the pattern continues forever, right? So it's at different size scales. And I'm convinced that what we're actually supposed to do is we're supposed to fast, we're supposed to feast at different time scales across the day, across the week, across the astronomical seasons, and across the liturgical seasons. And that there are going to be both physical and spiritual benefits to that. And then what we actually just need to do is recover the tradition of the church, which retained all of these things. And then there's this sort of ultimate time scale that the church fathers all point out. So weirdly, the church fathers were thinking about fasting so much that when they look at scripture, they said, actually, it's set by a fast and a feast. Scripture opens with an abstention with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they are told to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then scripture ends with a feast, with the eschatological feast of the Lamb in the kingdom of God, in which we love and know and enjoy God forever in the kingdom of God. That's the sort of large-scale eschatological pattern of feasting or fasting and feasting. And so when we participate in this, in our own little time scales, in a sense, we sort of experience in a diminished way this ultimate eschatological feast that we will enjoy in the presence of God forever. Thank you very much. <laughs>